Our children are dismissed for their unique time of worship. As they are leaving us, let us bow together and pray. Let the people praise you, O God. All the people, all the nations rejoice and be glad, for you judge all of us righteously. Because we have come to know you as a God who is gracious and loving, revolutionary in your way of dealing with us and thus us with each other. We gather in this sacred place, as folks have done for decades before us, to reorient ourselves by your love, to hear your spirit speak, sometimes through a preacher, sometimes through an anthem, often through scripture that is eliciting for us what we need to hear in this particular time and place. We're grateful for the heritage we have. But you're a God who lives in the present and moves us toward the future, and so we orient ourselves toward that day by praying the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. My schedule this week was altered uh, somewhat when I was invited to speak at a local mosque on a Wednesday evening. Rather than being here at our church prayer meeting, I found myself joining a rabbi and an imam to talk about peacemaking from our various religious perspectives. I assumed it was going to be a small crowd, but I I wore a suit for the occasion. Uh, I felt... um, a little outflank, the imam had on his jama and the rabbi had his Hebrew Torah, but I at least had my power suit on. <laughs> I was feeling pretty swank until I got there and they invited us to take our shoes off. So here I am in my suit and my gold-toed uh, socks. It has a way of bringing one down. We were asked this question, what are the key concepts in your religious tradition that lead you toward peacemaking? I hadn't prepared much for this, but my answer was something like this. That the central symbol of our faith is the cross of Jesus. Him dying on the cross. And if you look around our sanctuary, you see it is replete with crosses. I said to the group that there has been a time when, for some time now, where the cross has been reduced in the presentation of what the gospel is about. It's been reduced to what Brian McLaren calls an evacuation plan for the next world. That is, it's all about saving us from going to hell when we die. I said, I don't want to minimize that understanding of faith and the now and the next 
But it seems to me that that is a truth that has been greatly reduced. That at its core, what the cross is saying to us is that the Holy One, coming in human form, opts to take on the cross to give up himself in love in the face of fear and hatred and violence. To seeks to give of himself even to the point of death rather than seek violence or revenge. That's a shift for me from the faith that I was raised in. I went to church as Matt described, Sunday morning, checking off the little boxes and the envelopes, making sure I was present and on time, brought my Bible, had an offering, had done my daily Bible reading, had invited people to church, all those things. I went to church on Wednesday night, but really what we heard again and again was, are you sure you're going to heaven when you die? That's still an important message. But as I read the Bible, And as I especially hone in on the Gospels, what I see in there is the invitation of Jesus to a larger understanding of cross and salvation and this revolutionary way of love. He told a story one time about a rich man who had a poor man at his gate. The rich man died. The the poor man died. The poor man went to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man ended up in Hades. Why? Why the disparity? The answer had nothing to do with what one believed. It had to do with how the rich man lived out, lived out his faith, his life. Did you care for the poor man at your gate? It's not the only parable he told. He told other, lots of other. He told, his last parable was the parable of when the Son of Man comes in all his glory and separates the nations as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He separates one from the other. One comes to heaven, the other one goes to hell. Why? I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked, I was sick, I was in prison, and you cared for me. It's about how we live what we believe not just about what we believe. We just prayed it. We prayed the prayer that Jesus taught us, and in it he says, God, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. That our relationship to God is intrinsically connected to how we live this life. And so this morning... We read from John chapter 13 this revolutionary story. I know it's church, and we kind of have on our Sunday ears, and we sort of hear things that we expect to hear, but hear this story again in its revolutionary context. This one who has said, the Father and I are one. This one who has brought the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven, he's the one. who takes off his outer robe, puts on a towel, and washes his disciples' feet. It's the role of a servant. It'd be like the head of the medical society emptying the bedpans. It is the most menial of tasks. And yet, he does it for them. And in case they miss the point and want to turn this into some ritual that has no meaning, he says it explicitly to them. Do you know what I've done for you? I've washed your feet. And so ought you to wash other people's feet. 
I've left you this example to do as I have done for you. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciple if you have love for others. It's about paying it forward rather than trying to pay God back. It's about living these lives of love. What if at the core of all religion, all our faiths, is this call to be so connected to the sacred, to God, for us revealed in Jesus Christ, that we not only believe in him, but we live his way, his truth, his life. In fact, he said, there's no other way to God but to live this way, this truth, this life. My friend Mark told me a story about his early days after high school. He'd gone to college a semester or two and just wasn't quite ready for it yet. So he took a job, got an apartment, started accruing some bills as we're prone to do. But he realized at some point, I I need to go to school. He was fortunate that he worked for a company that said to him, if you'll go to college in your off hours... At the end of the semester, if you made an A or B, we'll reimburse you for your tuition. It's a great deal. So he began to go to college. At the end of the semester, he'd have some money. Uh, They'd pay him back, and he'd be able to do the next semester until a semester came on where he had more bills than money. And he wasn't able to pull together the money to pay in advance the next semester's tuition. He went to his boss. He said, Charlie, I've been with the company for several years now. I've made A's in my classes. I've always done well. What I want to know is if the company would be willing to advance me the money so that I can pay for my tuition. I don't know about that, said Charlie. We've not done that. Come back and ask me tomorrow. The next day, as Mark made his way to the boss's office, he thought to himself, if if they're not able to do it, I'm going to quit school. I'm going to take that as a sign that college is not for me and I'm just going to move on with my life. He went into the office and Charlie said, yeah, well, the the office, the, the company can't do it. But here, across the table, he slid an envelope and in the envelope was a personal check made out to Mark from Charlie and his wife. Charlie said, I needed to check with the missus to make sure this was okay. She wants us to do this. Mark took the money, went to college for that semester, made his A's and B's, got his reimbursement from the company, of course, paid Charlie back immediately. And he tells that story because it was, for him, the catalyst. He tells his children, if it wasn't for the generosity of Charlie... I wouldn't have finished college. I wouldn't have gotten my master's degree. I wouldn't have had my career at GE. And we wouldn't have all the resources that we as a family have today. Mark says, my wife will often say, watching television, Oprah, or one of these shows where they give away a house or give away a car, oh, wouldn't it be fun to have that kind of money and be able to give things away like that? But Mark says, I tell my kids... Don't wait until you're rich to be generous. Give what you have now. 
By the way, the check that Charlie wrote that made all the difference in Mark's life was $75. Earlier this week, there was a story on NPR about a man who was one of seven children. Back in the 1940s, his family was on welfare. His mother uh, was trying to keep the family together all by herself. They were having a hard time when finally Henry, the oldest boy, decided at age 16 he would drop out of school in order to help Mama with the bills. He was determined. The person telling the story said, I remember the day the truant officer came to our house to see where Henry was, and Henry saying emphatically, I'm not going back to school. I'm helping out Mama. That is, until a woman in their church, Lillian Tinsley, a woman who cleaned houses for a living, went to Henry's mother and said to her, you send that boy back to school because I will give you, out of what I earn, what he could make if he went out and found a job. And so Henry did go back to school. Finished high school. The oldest boy, he got a scholarship to a junior college, and his experience at junior college inspired the other kids so that they all not only finished high school, but all of them finished college as well, and two of them went on to get doctoral degrees. My question is this. What if? What if, like Charlie and Lillian Tinsley, And Matt and Marianne Ridge, we used what we have, who we are, the capacities that ours. I'm talking to children, youth, adults, senior adults, those on fixed incomes, those with no income. What if we used what we have and who we are to pay it forward, to trust God? That if we will love as commanded, that God will do the rest. There's a story in the book of Acts about a man named Saul. Angry with life, angry with the world, he lived a religion where God was severe and rules were about boundaries and moral scrutiny. Saul was one of those who went after those who followed this Jesus, who preached this message of love. Until one day, we don't know why, but one day, Saul got it. The light came on so much that it blinded him temporarily. The light came on so severely that it knocked him off his horse, knocked him off his feet. Because he saw that God's not a God of severity and anger and moral scrutiny and who's in and who's out and who's good and who's bad, but that rather this God was a God of love that gives over and above, revealed in this Jesus who dies rather than retaliate. That's the heart of God. It it changed his life. It utterly transformed him so much that they changed his name from Saul to Paul. He wrote letters to the church, 13 of them, of which are in our New Testament today. And in one of them, in a letter to the Philippians, he says this, Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, didn't assume that equality with God was something to hang on to, but rather he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and was obedient even to death on a cross. And because of that, God has exalted him and given him this name that's above every name, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In preacher school, we, we really love that verse. We, we scrutinize that verse. We read it backwards and forwards, and we, we notice the patterns of how Jesus was first with God and then descended and was a servant, and then he's elevated at the end. And we do all this focus on Jesus, but what we forget is the point of that reading from Paul is this. You have this mind in you that was in Christ. The focus isn't Christ in that passage. It's you and me. It's how we live. It's our response to this Christ, to love one another, to have the capacity to pay it forward. To pay it forward is to look beyond ourselves. It is to believe not only in my need, my security, my happiness, but it is to look toward the future with love. Many of us were required to read Homer's Odyssey, the story of Odysseus and his 10-year journey through battles and temptations and challenges and storms, and finally he returns to Ithaca. He has to prove even to his wife Penelope that he is who he is after this long time of way, and finally toward the end he gets to see his father, old ancient of days, Laertes. He's out in the, in the garden. He's planting trees. Planting trees. A symbol of that capacity to believe in the future that we may not even be our future, but it's somebody's future, and we love them even into the future. Here at Highland, we're trying to build love, to pay it forward into the future. And I know that there are, are some, there always are, who ask the question, why, why are we spending money in this way? Why not spend it on uh, Shelby Park and the needs down there? Why not spend it among the refugees in Morocco? And not to silence you, but I will note that in the chapter before, in John chapter 12, Judas asked that very question. Thank you very much. But it's a question that deserves an answer. And here's at least my answer. Here at Highland, we are planting trees. We're, cr- we're creating a place where God's transforming love can be held up and lived out, where we're called to be the people of peace in this world of violence, to believe in a Jesus who, who is here for all the world. To pay God's love forward, we are going to feed the poor, welcome the stranger, defend the oppressed, champion the minorities, and and be about the work of God in this world. We are going to do those things. We're going to do it because we get to do moments like this where we worship God together, where we go into classes and study together, where we have a base from which we do this work of love. 
It's about paying it forward. In 1892, Basil Manley, who was one of the founders of the Baptist Seminary, when it was downtown and these were cow pastures out here, signed his name to the mortgage at the corner of East Broadway and New Transit. It's where we sit right now. Even before they got a church building built, Basil Manley died. He believed in this future. You might say he loved you. Because you're here now because of his vision. They built a sanctuary in this place. But in 1913, 100 years ago this year, they tore it down and they built this present beautiful sanctuary. They said, we want a place that's open to more people to embody God's love. As this neighborhood grows, we need to grow with it. It was the eve of World War I, 1913. It was a day when there weren't the social systems and net, uh, welfare nets that there are today. There was lots of need in the world. And don't you know there were people who said, you're going to tear down a perfectly good sanctuary to build a new one? Why would anybody do that? But here we are, 100 years later. This church is a beacon to this community that says, God is not done. In 1953, 60 years ago this year, People built our present Christian education building, and it's been a gift to us for 60 years. They paid a lot of money to build that building. And some of you were children when it was built. But here we are 60 years later, living in it, studying in it, doing the work of love out of it. Thanks be to God that they paid it forward into this present day. Matt and Marianne told the story about the the uh, building of the elevator in this place. This old church on four different levels, very difficult for those who had uh, uh, traveling difficulties. Don't you know there were people who said, an elevator in the church? Well, my church didn't have that. We don't need that today. What they found out when they started to build that elevator is this church is built upon the rock. There is bedrock underneath this church. And this is before my day. But some of you can remember the day when to walk through this church when they were jackhammering the the bedrock would just shake the fillings right out of your teeth. But they built that elevator. And I'm glad they did. Not only for those who are handicapped accessible, who need handicap accessibility, but as a symbol, as a first symbol for us to say, All are welcome. Not just the beautiful, not just the capable, not just those who have the capacity to climb stairs, not just people who look and act like us, but all are welcome. Some of you were here some six, seven years ago when we had to have our Sunday morning services down in the Methodist church because this place had been emptied out so that we could renovate it to look like it does today. You remember when we worshipped in Fellowship Hall and we'd sing and get dust in our teeth because we were working in a construction zone. Some of you came after that. And I tell that story not to make you feel guilty that you've come late, but as an invitation to you to say, now it's our turn to pay it forward, to do this work that 
God has called Highland to do in this time and this place. There's a great verse from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. It says this. We drink from wells we did not dig. We warm ourselves by fires we did not kindle. We live in houses we did not build. The point is not guilt. The point is gratitude. An invitation to pay it forward. Therefore, says the Deuteronomist, don't forget the Lord who made all of this possible. Don't forget. And so this building love campaign to renovate our youth space, our children's space, to make a new interior and passageways for us to be here for the next hundred years. It is but one way, one way to follow Christ, but I believe it's an important way for us as a community. We have the opportunity in, in building love to not only care for our current youth and children as wonderful as they are, but to care for those in the years to come, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, our children's children's children, a place for them to know and experience the story of Jesus as the Prince of Peace who wants to reconcile all and make us one. And so my prayer today, as we make our financial pledges to this renovation effort, is that we will give sacrificially, not just reasonably, sacrificially. And that as we give, that our lives will follow our money, that we will build love wherever we go to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Prince of Peace, who washes our feet, may we follow your way, inspirited by your presence. May we live these lives of joy and sacrifice, of hopefulness and courage, until that day when all things are complete. This is our prayer this day, in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.